0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: All right, our scripture reading today is from Revelation two, twelve through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword.
0: Well, welcome again to Nashville. Um, My three-year-old son, often if you haven't already driven downtown, if you're new here or if you're not, you probably see it or maybe even work next to it, the Batman building downtown. My three-year-old son always asks when we're in the car, hey, is Batman there right now? And I always say, of course he is, because Batman lives in Nashville, and that's where I want him to live, not just you. But... It is interesting, you know, if you are new here, and uh, a couple of the fun facts you may hear about Nashville, some are great, some aren't, Uh, we are, we now beat uh, Las Vegas as the number one place for bachelorette parties, so just a thing for you, if you're getting married, you're in the right spot. Um, It is an interesting place, too, if you walk around, uh, you know, if you go to 12 South, which many of you live there, you heard, we have two connect groups that are in that area, And I'm sure they see the foot traffic all the time next to the flag that I believe in Nashville flag that you see people put on Instagram literally every other day. Uh, I was in the Gulch, and I didn't realize this one until I actually was there and saw it. They're the angel wings. You know what I'm talking about? So there's this. If you're new to Nashville, go to the Gulch. It's not too far. It's not Demon Bruin, but Demumbruin, and you drive over that street, which is what you know if you do it on your phone, it'll say Demon Bruin. You're just like, mm, I'm lost. So if you go over there, to, like you're going to downtown, and you go in the gulch, there are these two sets of angel wings painted on the the buildings, and there is literally, I was there, gosh, a couple weeks ago, uh, meeting somebody, and a line of people, line, like down the block of people just waiting patiently to stand in front of the wings like this and take a picture. They had images all over the place that people would want to get next to. (laughs) Their angel wings were pictures of the current emperor or emperor's past. Because to them, the emperor meant you were close to divinity, uh, and you worshiped the emperor. And then, if that wasn't enough, the top of it all, at the pinnacle of the city when you came in, was an enormous throne of Zeus, Zeus himself. And they would have sacrifices to animals 24-7 around that, that huge monument to Zeus. So that when you were in Pergamum, you knew you were in Pergamum. <clears throat> and you knew what Pergamum valued. You knew what they worshipped. You knew what they held dear. And it is interesting to read this passage And as you read as we have been looking at the seven churches in Revelation, knowing exactly what's going on, all of the issues, both in the city and in the church. Revelation itself can be a little bit, somewhat, you see these names and even, you know, when I, we've asked certain people to read scripture and Jimmy was good to read that and he did a great job and, you know, there are these names in there that you think, where are these names from? Revelation is, a, is basically, and I wanna put it to you simple, do not be afraid of it. It is one of my favorite books and here's why. It's theology and pictures. Most people approach Revelation and they ask, when? When is all this gonna happen? But what Revelation is actually telling us is who? It's saying who wins, not when. I love, and I've read this quote before and I'll read it again because I think it really puts it in in the way we should understand it. When Flannery O'Connor was asked why she writes the way she does, the great Southern writer, I love her writing. This was her answer. You have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the heart of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. That is the imagery that is supposed to shock us in Revelation. It's supposed to teach us something. And don't let your mind wander around when you think about it, You think of dragons and all these crazy images. It's to allow us for our imagination almost to float like a kite. It's to help us try and digest difficult theology in pictures. But it's also... For us to know that it's every time connected back to already current passages in the the Bible. It's not new revelations, it's called revelation for a reason. Because that kite is always tethered back to what is in the scripture. And it always applies to them first and then to us. So how does it apply? The two major themes here to Pergamum are, first, it is a center of worship. And the second thing is the following of truth. Very simple things. This city was really interesting. And the more I studied about this city, even over some of the other ones that we've looked at, it it continued. It was like a rabbit hole of countless ways that Pergamum was really held up as an amazing center. But it was a center of worship. It begins here even saying in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. (laughs) pretty stark right off the back. Pergamum had once been the capital, listen to this, had once been the actual capital of Rome, of Rome in that province in Asia. It was held up as the greatest place and then later on it was moved to Ephesus and Ephesus was made the center of financial trade and and everything else. But if you went into Pergamum, you would see those things, some of the things that I mentioned. First, really the emperor worship. It was the first city Even before Rome took it over, that actually created temples for their emperors. That the people in power, the authority, were held up as major divinity, those to be worshiped. And Rome was just another one of those, maybe even enhanced that with the power of Rome itself. So Asclepios, the Savior, was the next. Next one, and that one sounds a little odd. But some of you who are in medicine here will t- totally uh, recognize this. This was actually a medical college, and it was known for its healing. And the symbol, which many of you who would know this, the symbol for that was the serpent. There was actually a symbol of this serpent next to this uh, this um, uh, patron god, particularly. And people would come from all around to be healed at this center, at this medical college, learn and grow. It also had this, as I mentioned earlier, an enormous altar to Zeus. So as we have our Batman building and everybody recognizes Nashville by that, if you see the head of Zeus, you know you're on your way to Pergamum. It was set up. It was glorious in what it was. It was a place of worship. Everything about it. And the thing that I think we need to recognize as we even move into this passage, as it says, even right after this, you hold fast my name and you did not deny faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. It's, it's giving us a contrast of worship. It's saying, in the midst of a place where worship is, you held on to worship of another kind. Now, I don't know where everyone in this room may be in their worship. But I do know everyone in this room, even if you're here and you say, I don't know whether I believe in this Christ thing or not or the Bible, you still hold to worship. Everyone does. We actually have, and this is interesting, and I would say this to them, they meet next door. Every once a month, next door to us meets a group called the Sunday Assembly. They're actually a group of agnostic atheists. They meet for their group, their worship, once a month. And we've had great interactions with them. That's one thing I actually love about meeting in this space we meet. We meet in spaces around people that may not agree with us. And and I hope there are people in this room that are in that space too. But the thing that we would have in common, we'd say, you know what? As much as you may not believe in God, you know you worship something. That is what this passage is saying. There is worship. And what is it? What is the worship? What do you give power to in your life? Whatever that is, you worship it. There's a great uh, uh, counselor, PhD, somewhat theologian. His name is Dan Allender. Some of you may have read his books. He wrote in a book called Wounded Heart that was primarily actually about even abuse. It's a beautiful book. And so if any of you are in, in, in need of help or would like to talk about that, this is a great resource of that level. But Listen to what he says. He says, when we fail to trust the real God, we do not escape trusting someone or something Trust like breathing and indeed like worship is inevitable. It is not that some people trust, some people worship, some breathe, and others do not. We cannot fail to trust God without turning our trust to something that becomes a new God for us. Listen to that. There's always that movement of trust. What do you give power to? What do you put it into? Worship actually just means worth-ship. That's where it comes from. It's what you give worth to. It's what you give power to. And in this city, and think about this, even in our city, this is not a far jump. You can figure out just in a city what city holds dear by the patterns, by what's easily seen, what's promoted. You can drive through a city and know what it is. And especially in a city like Nashville, which could be confusing, and a lot of people maybe from here, a lot of people in this room may be moving from places that are not as religious or uh, Christianized or have some sort of churches on it, in a place that has churches on every corner and comes from that background, it could be really confusing to think that this is just a Christianized city. But we need to be careful to think about that. What do we worship? What are the things we hold dear? What are the patterns, things that are promoted and things that people see in your life that you put your trust in? Because you worship something, what is it? Is it your children? Is every move of theirs that they make something that you just jump at? When they are anxious about something, anxious about going back to school, you're more anxious. Because you put far too much worth in where they are. Is it a spouse or having a spouse? That longing and that need to be fulfilled or met in a certain way. Is it coming to a school like a Vanderbilt, a Belmont, wherever it may be in this city? This city actually used to be called, and it still is in some terms, the Athens of the South because of so many uh, educational and, and academic institutions in this city. The people came here because they wanted to have a name for where they went to school. Is it that? We could continue on. We could keep going down that, that, that trail. But have you ever asked that before? See, notice in this passage too, there's, there's an interesting thing here that says that Balaam, teaching of Balaam who bought, taught Balak to put stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. See, that's where it actually goes, the the question of idolatry. What is an idol? Something that we set up to worship. Look, if you walked into Pergamum, you would see those things everywhere. Athens, actually, if you read Athens in the, the book of Acts in the Bible, it sets up a million different things. It says, when you walked in that place, there were more things to worship than people. Because why? We know what our hearts want. And there are great theologians who have said over the years, John Calvin being one of them, who said our hearts are idol factories. We are ready to make something to worship because we are made to worship. What is that? I was sitting with a friend um, some time ago, and we were just sitting talking about our hearts and how we were overwhelmed with life and those kind of things. And uh, it was kind of his turn. We kind of take turns and really share our hearts and he began to share his heart with me and, um, and I, I stopped him after he finished and, and I, I said, let's go back. And we were at a restaurant and we had a, one of those rolls of tola- uh, toilet paper. That's always helpful. Don't eat at that place. Uh, paper towels, sorry. Mixed that, yeah. You're like, welcome to Nashville and to Christ Presbyterian Church. I started tearing off every time I said, stop, go one by one. And he started listing the things that were in his life. And I began tearing off one by one. Every time he said something, I'd lay a paper towel down. And these were select a size, by the way. They weren't the big kind. I started laying paper towels down. And by the time he finished, there was no room for his elbows on the table. And it was such an image to him. And he even said to me, stop tearing those off. Even putting those on the table is starting to give me anxiety. But I wanted him to see as a friend, what are the things that you have in front of you? All the things that you're trying to manage because they own you. That is what worshiping idols do. We think, and here's the kicker, you know that you're worshiping something besides God or trying to make God something he's not. When you can lay those things out and they are not merciful at all those things out in front of you and you're trying to control them and manage them. And an idol will always tell you, I'll love you if, fill in the blank. I'll give you all that you want if, fill in the blank. What are the paper towels? Imagine that. Take a moment and imagine what are the things right now that if you were to tear off those things and lay them in front of you, How many things demand your worship right now? It's a stark image. It it is so easy for me, and it's funny when I talk about worship because people around me are thinking, oh, you're a pastor. You talk about worship all the time, right? And I'm supposed to be the one that tells everybody, look, I'm the lead of those paper towels. I've got plenty of rolls of, you know, Paper towels and toilet paper in front of me. My life is filled with those things. But the difference is, and what Jesus is trying to do here, is he sets himself up, even as the one who says, the sharp two-edged sword, that his throne is different than Satan's. This is why Antipas, that name, we actually don't know much about him. All we know is from this verse, but is that he because of his worship of Jesus, died for the faith. He was one of the few martyrs in that city. He was killed for his faith. Some say he was actually put in a bowl and burned alive, almost like food. Jesus is not asking us, and this is obvious, none of us will probably be in that position ever. He is not asking us if we will die for him. He's asking you, will you live for him. Will you see what you worship and turn from it and turn to the one who is merciful, as we sang earlier? The one whose throne is different than others. His throne isn't made by hands. Here, here's some distinctives Jesus' throne is not made by hands. If you are worshiping something that is made by hands, you know, well, you've, who's given the power? That was one of the ways when they walked in the cities, look, they would say, this is the distinction between Christianity and anything else, is that the difference between it is that the thrones you set up, that you're making it for that thing. And you want that God, or whatever it is in your life, to bless you because you bring your good record to it because you bring everything to it that's an idol. God says the opposite. I don't need your record. I don't need a throne. My throne is going to the cross. This is why the Greeks thought Christianity was ridiculous. Because why would why would a god come in flesh? Why would he do that? And remember, they were all saying, if you read the Gospels, they're all saying, take up your throne, take the crown. Both religious and irreligious were saying that to him. And he said, no, it's not about that kind of throne. His throne is in a different place and his kingdom is of a different kind and quality. He is gracious. You can know what idols you serve if you are trying to serve them and they give you no grace back, only guilt. Guilt. And if you're serving Jesus and all you feel is guilt, you have to really ask yourself, what God are you serving? I've told you all this illustration before, and this was talk about a perfect one of me. I'll just share me. Sitting in an Easter service years ago, where all Easter celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And all I could think about for an hour and whatever, 10 minutes of the service, was how I need to read the Bible more, pray more. I almost started sweating. And this is like five, six years ago. Hi, I'm your pastor. What was I worshiping in that moment? Not the risen Lord. I was worshiping what I could do to make him love me more. And I was an ordained pastor when I was going through that experience, by the way. What do you set up instead of Jesus on the throne? What what idol? Because here's the kicker in these names, and we'll go there. It's not just the center of worship here, but following the truth. What defines our worship is the truth that we follow, right? It is that very thing. Notice what he says here. But verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now this is what he was referring to. In Numbers, a book that all of you read, I'm sure every day, it's an Old Testament book. Many of us skip over it. It's in the Old Testament, first five books of the Bible. It's actually a fascinating book. It's about the, the, the people of Israel in the wilderness. And when they were, there was a prophet named Balaam who was asked by Balak to curse God's people, to actually speak against them and curse them down, and God. Prevented him from doing that. But here's what Balaam said. If you read in Numbers 25, you'll read this. It talks about Balaam saying, if you really want to seduce the people of Israel, move into what they teach one another. Don't just come down and punish them through major heavy hand, move in subtly. And it actually worked, it destroyed the people of Israel. Because what they began to do was say, well, yeah, it's okay for me to follow this and this. There, was a, there became a blending, a blurred vision of sorts of who do we follow and why? See, worship flows from the lenses you understand. And here it is through the Bible. It is through making sense of that. It is to give you understanding of your senses of reality. Look, and, and I think it's this week I just asked, I met a current uh, Vandy student who's here. And again, welcome students. This is one of the events every year at Vanderbilt that gave me hives, okay? They would actually have an activity fair. And I know they have these at every place, but this is what was fascinating. They would pack everybody in and you would see booths, tables all over the place. People sharing tables, squint, squunched up. Because we would be there, you know, talking about come to our um, campus ministry, you know, come to our UF, whatever. And we'd be squashed together. And there'd be people like carrying canoes, like trying to get people's attention. And every single year, I mean, it was like an over, I was just, I couldn't, I mean, couldn't take it all in. It was Unbelievable. everybody's trying to get you to come to their table, take their like little pamphlets in a cup and walk away. And by the time you're finished, you have like 25 cups and like 38 million trees stuck in paper in those cups. And I remember actually, and this is very vividly, having students walking through there and then literally them bawling, crying. Now, not to scare you parents or students. But it is such an over—it is such a picture, and all of we, we had this at our schools. All uh, look—it's such a picture of an overwhelming word to listen, 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 and your senses overload. And everybody wants you on their mailing list, and everybody wants you to come and be a part of their thing. And it's an overactivity of things, and that is what is going on. Look. How many of us actually stop to listen? How much is the word listen in the Bible for us to say we need to stop and listen to what God is saying? To make sense of everything else. How much look, this this sounds like one of the most basic sermons to you, maybe? If you've come to church before, worship and word. That's really all I'm saying. What do you worship and do you put yourself in the Bible to know what is this Christianity about? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? You can come and hear me give you sermons all day long, but unless you're actually reading that passage and weighing, is Stacy saying, what's he saying? That's what they would do, even with the greatest apostles who followed Jesus, they would look at the Bible and they'd say, eh, "Is that correct?" I read a fascinating uh, actually I heard a fascinating podcast I usually read the articles uh, from the Atlantic The Atlantic has podcasts um, I don't know if you follow them or not there's one about technology it was incredible to me because it was they were talking in the podcast about the change in genius of movement of information now they were talking about misinformation and all the false you know information that's out there on social media particularly it was talking about facebook was talking about all those you know things in our that in the news right now but they were talking essentially historically what was the turn of that and they talked about years ago that when the tabloids decided now back then they were tabloids actually newspapers right they began to say, how do we sell attention instead of just information? So this huge product of making people the product rather than the story. And so think about that. Think about the genius. Think about the things that you have clicked on the side of your computer screen that pop up and you're like, that's interesting. You know, it's attention-grabbing. And you read it and it's worthless. Or maybe false news. There's so much about that. And what I think is fascinating is how the tabloids, the newspapers, you know, the ones you walk through the grocery store and it's like, you know, pregnant man gives birth, you know, all these like crazy, like tabloid kind of things that go along in the thing, right? I mean, you read those, those, the birth of those years ago was on how do we, who cares about the reality of the information? What we want is attention. We want people. We want to grab them. The Bible is doing the opposite of that. It's saying it is not all about you. It's saying there's a story that you're a part of. Hear the story. It is a set period in time. And this is why Jesus is on the throne. And actually, why Jesus is characterized in every one of these letters with a certain characteristic of who he is that fits with what the church needs. And what is it here? It's a sword, a two-edged sword. So much so, it even says again in verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Why? Because it is through Jesus that truth and reliability come. It is through him. He is claiming that authority and that reliability. It, look, it is interesting that there's a connection to Zeus here in this. Because if you know the, the Odyssey, when it was written, The Odyssey was written, and it was incredibly controversial. And in in its time, the Odyssey was saying, how do men overthrow the gods? And so if you read the Odyssey, you're reading a huge story that was massively overturning culture and time to say, men have the power. It's not just about the gods. And the one book that is held, and this is historically speaking, we can talk about this further outside of this as well if you have questions, that is held in reliability as much as the Odyssey is the Bible. And think about the complete opposite nature of the Bible. The Bible is saying that it was an event stuck in history and time, built up before and even flowing after, that came through a man who claimed he was God, who went to the cross, died and rose again it looks like a tragedy. Even the people that followed him, it was a complete tragedy. Why this guy? Because the only way, the only reliability that we can have, the only way to connect to us in our head, our hearts, and our lives is to actually move in a way through flesh for us to understand that. You know one of the most beautiful things when my three-year-old prays, and he does this on his own, I I I did not even teach him this. We'll, say, we'll pray at night, and, and I'll say, is there anything that you want to pray for? And sometimes he'll say no. And then other times, Cole will say, yeah, I pray. God, thank you for your Bible. And he'll just say it like that, like, just matter of fact, thank you for your Bible. Tells us about Jesus. And I think, <laughs> it's not just cute, which it is, But I think how much of my, when the Bible talks about me being a child, how much do I believe that this is such a different story? This isn't about my triumph. It's about the triumph of someone who came, lived, and died in my place. It's not a Superman story. It's not one of those kind of things. It's the fact that we have a God who put himself in the position of being Killed, martyred for the faith, for our faith. Like this passage ends in this way, and I think this is very important for us to understand. He says in verse seventeen, "He who has an ear, let us let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. What in the world is he talking about? Hidden manna. Manna is talking about that kite, remember? It's giving us an imagination. It's that tether back to the Old Testament when the people of God were walking in the wilderness like they were in Numbers. And the way that God fed them was through providing bread from heaven. It was providing bread day after day. It was delivering them. It was caring for them. It was giving himself to them. And the white stone is actually a stone that was used in a court system. When a juror would place his, you know, his view of whoever's being tried, he would have a white stone if they wanted that, that person to be acquitted. And on that white stone, on this one particularly, is our name written. You see, what Jesus is saying is, if you pursue me, if you know who I am, It's not about you being held up. If you know what the word says, it is about this body and blood that says you are delivered and you are innocent. You are delivered from any of that. Here is a God who's different from, you want an image different from any angel's wings or any Batman building or any other image that you hold up in your life. This image is the one that's supposed to overwhelm your senses. You can't come just smell this and you can't just let it be a part of the outside of you. You have to ingest it. You have to take it in. It has to be a, become a part of you so that you would be changed. Because here's the reward. He's the one that gives himself, the, ma- the hidden manna, himself for you. Because there's a stone, tangible stone of innocence that will never fade away, that has your name on it. That's how you come to this table. Let's stand together, if you will.